Hello and welcome to Under the Skin. Today's guest is Jack Monroe, the cook, writer, activist, chef, spokesperson for anti-austerity issues. I've just done the podcast. It was absolutely fantastic. You're going to love it. She's funny and authentic, brilliant. I really, really enjoyed talking with Jack. I done Radnaut Swami last week. Thanks for your comments. Let me have a look at some of them comments. This was on Twitter, I think. Kirsty Malarkey. I've listened to this twice now. Bloody love it. And it's a brilliant way to start a Sunday filled with the ones I love. Yeah, listen to uh, Under the Skin on a Sunday. It's per- perfect sort of Sunday listening, isn't it? Amanda Minovini says, This is so pure and enlightening. I've never felt so connected to a podcast before. And I genuinely loved every, every second of it. Thank you, Rusty Rockets, for sharing this. I'll tell you why. It's because he was... Um, a beaming spiritual swami wasn't he he just did nothing but emanate the light of the lord or in his case lord krishna just i mean but it's all semaphore isn't it the divine formless light behind all reality can go by many names it was a great episode and i'm glad you enjoyed it have you watched me on netflix yet have you seen rebirth go and watch it for heaven's sake and also while i'm telling you to further invest in me and my feelings and thoughts my new book mentors is coming out in hardback kindle and as an audio book this month go to russellbrand.com and get a copy i'll be giving a talk about my new book mentors which i've you know that's what it's called that's the name of it there's no question about that in london on the 29th of january you can get tickets at the howtoacademy.com each ticket comes with a copy of the book well that's good isn't it come to that get a book and now it's time for uh, jack monroe she wrote cooking on a bootstrap so she talks about sort of like cooking like uh, when you haven't got enough money she's an activist raising issues about poverty and inequality in britain i've told you all of these things so I hope you enjoy it. I really, really, really loved meeting her. She's an incredible person. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Luckily, I do accept very substantial loaves of bread. They are quite heavy. <laughs> there was another one, but I couldn't carry them all. They are dense. One from that to drop, like a bal- <laughs> hot air balloon taking off. Yep. Loaves were dropping away. Yeah, yeah. They were like, you can't. Have you paid an extra twenty-seven pounds fifty for that bag, madam? <laughs> if your loaf of bread doesn't fit within this, exactly, specified luggage compartment. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what a wonderful way to introduce you, Jack Monroe, to Under the Skin. I am a fan of yours, your cooking, and your Thank ethos. You. And now that I've spent more than uh, twenty seconds in your focused company of your entire being even though I'm sure as a complex human you have got a negative dark side, as we all do, seems to be part of life. Mostly, I'm totally enamoured of you. Thank you for bringing me some bread. Talk me through these, like, because, like, now, what you're most famous for, I think, is for cooking in a way that's uh, meant to be accessible for ordinary people, not cooking as a sort of ornamentation or Mm -hmm. as a privilege, but for cooking as a, a necessity. Yeah, basically, I try to encourage people to cook the very best food that they can with the very least that they've got in a a very simple simple. manner. Yeah, it's the the best that you can manage with the least that you've got. Um, And bread is one of my cornerstone things. I think people could literally be a cornerstone. Well, literally, the weight of that is (laughs) (laughs) like here you go. We could build a cathedral around that. A couple of loaves and a doorstop. It's up to you to determine which is which. (laughs) No, Um, they're amazing. I love them. (laughs) 
Sorry. Sorry, mate. Getting over a chest infection, which is uh, unhelpful. But I'm gl- so you'd be grateful for this distance between us. But um, yeah, so bread is one of my cornerstone things of that. Is I think people see making bread as being quite elitist and quite, oh, well, I don't have a bread maker. People say to me, I'm like, well, you don't need a bread maker. You've got hands. And if your hands work, you can make bread. You can make bread out of flour and water a little bit of yeast and and it's something that I think has become very middle class very aspirational and actually it's something we've been doing since the dawn of time or thereabouts roughly mm, roughly about <laughs> roughly. time dawned and yeah then time went, dawned bread came along some bread there now. we go yeah you know yeah and, um, and so it's but it's also for me it's a stress reliever so it's a really good skill to have if you find yourself getting a bit angsty a bit anxious or a bit sort of grouchy about the state of the world I am anxious me, and angsty turn on and the news grouchy. You turn on the news, everything's awful, and there's me, potter, 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 potter into the kitchen, bread, 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 bang, 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 bang. I feel so much better. And I've got bread. It's brilliant. Um, you pound so out your like angst to, into a loaf. Exactly. Ten minutes of punching the crap out of something. It's just a good... Bread is brilliant. God, it's like, and it's so unfairly maligned. People are like, oh, carbs are bad. And I'm like, I am made of carbs. I'm not bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's, do you think that what you're saying about bread could be extrapolated into a, 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 an understanding of our modern detachment from sort of self-care like we don't know how to mend a car anymore because there's sort of electronics in the way we don't know how to bake bread you know we've become sort of odd passive little units yeah i think that there's i think there's really something in that and i think that making bread is a really powerful way of looking after yourself it's a really powerful self-care tool it's to me as i say i use it when i'm a bit angsty a bit anxious a bit wound up i use it to physically de-stress i mean my, my shoulders and my arms if you need bread properly they will hurt afterwards you know it's a proper physical workout but also it's really simple and it's an act of love to yourself you can take these ingredients that you would not want to eat on their own like a spoonful of flour and a teaspoon of yeast and turn them into something that is ultimately one of the greatest things you can have a nice hot loaf of bread fresh from the oven toast it smear it with butter tear it over your hands stuff it in your mouth dunk it in your soup make it into a sandwich the world is your oyster it's just it's good bread is good i like bread (laughs) baking is the domestic alchemy it's like magic at home yeah, you know, it's witchcraft. Stuff. It's witchcraft in the kitchen. Yeah, it's literal witchcraft. It's taking these two basically bits of dust and adding some water and punching it a bit and poof, make it into bread. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like, I, I, I am always, I, I always seek to develop my cookery and make it more weird and make it more interesting while keeping it accessible. So last night I was like, I wonder if I can make bread with like vegetables in. I was a bit like I was tired I was a bit manic I was like a bit nervous I was like then I had this bottle of vegetable juice I bought this beetroot juice bright red beetroot juice and I was like I wasn't going to drink because it tasted like dust it was just like it was disgusting mm. really strong just poured the whole lot in with a load of flour and a little bit of yeast and I made this bright purple bread and it tasted astounding. And I was like, this is really cool. Like, and, and it's fun and it's scientific, but it's also really irreverent because I don't go, oh, I wonder if anyone's done this before or is there a recipe out there for it? Or I just go, oh, that worked. When did you start to <laughs> experiment with food and all that kind of thing? How come you've become this? I moved out of my parents' house when I was 16 or 17. No huge reason behind it. They were foster carers. So from the age of five, I had had a revolving door of 
children in varying states of trauma living under my roof. And um, that must have been intense. Yeah, so come sixteen, I was out of there. <laughs> I was like, I have had enough. I am, I am, I am out. I'm, right. I'm looking for some peace and quiet. Because foster um, carers, that's their sort of saints, I suppose, to to do that. But you, as a child of foster carers, you were continually confronted with damage. With kids. a lot, yeah, with a lot of ups and downs, and a lot of very interesting um, childhood experiences as a result of that. But so I moved out. Um, at 16, 17. Still got a great relationship with my parents. They're great people. Um, Tell us about them just briefly. Uh, my mum's called Evelyn. She's uh, disabled, but she used to be a nurse. So she's now a full-time foster carer. And my dad was a fireman and he's only just retired and he's busy making mischief everywhere because he's recently retired and up to no good. So was he in the ex- fire service in Essex? Yeah, he was in Essex. He mm. was based in Brentwood and then he was based down in Southend. And then we spent his last few days in a shirt and tie up in headquarters doing oh, stuff with road traffic collision reduction stuff. Basically lecturing me every time I wanted to buy a motorbike. What seemed to be the extent of his job. Right. <laughs> God, I've distilled it into don't get a motorbike. Yeah, yeah, it's, not even, do it's, not, even a, it's not even a real job, is it? <laughs> it's just, Dad, can I get a motorbike? No, the kill the seriously is just statistics of people in your age group. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then he retired and bought himself a motorbike. No, I was like, Hold on a minute. That's a sting in the tail. Well, he himself. It, yeah, but his age group apparently have the lowest killed and seriously injured statistics rate for motorcycle users across Essex. He's managing them statistics according to his yeah, whims. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he was in charge of the spreadsheet, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, good people. But I moved out and um, my parents had fed me well through my childhood. My mum's from Northern Ireland, my dad's Greek Cypriot, so I had sort of a mishmash of bacon, potatoes and moussaka as a kid. And I quickly realised that if I wanted to eat food, I would have to cook food for myself because it no longer just appeared out of the kitchen. Um, so I taught myself to cook. And Where'd I, you start? <laughs> I started with the back of a Lloyd Grossman Thai green curry jar. Ah, oh, they and put I turned a it over. Back. Well, I turned it over in the supermarket and I read the ingredients. It's in Sainsbury's, so I was about 17. And I was like, I'd, somewhere in the back of my head, someone had told me that cooking from scratch was cheaper. So I walked around Sainsbury's with this curry sauce jar that was about two quid and bought everything on it. Coconut milk, mushrooms, lemongrass, kaffir, lime leaves, everything. £17.50 or something at Kosu. I was like, I thought this was supposed to be cheaper. <laughs> but I didn't have a recipe. I threw it all apart. I had great fun. And I just went from there. I went on BBC Good Food website. I borrowed books from the library because this was like back in the day before everyone had mobiles with internet on and stuff like that. And uh, I just taught myself to cook. And uh, initially it was kind of disastrous it's disastrous for a long time but i just learned and ended up being able to do it and now i think i'm all right at it yeah clearly <laughs> clearly because you've uh, you, this is your book at the moment uh cooking on a bo- on a bootstrap jack monroe this is your like you've got another book coming out soon but this is the book that we can currently get of yours i've lived for it Microwave, microwave, cow and chili eggs. The microwave's yeah. not evil, then. No, no, they're not. No, look, everyone's got them, um, and they're really great things to have in a modern kitchen. You can cook pasta in a microwave. You can cook rice in a microwave. You can make a sort of a faux risotto in a microwave. The only thing I'd ever used a microwave for before I left home was my mum used to make scrambled eggs in the microwave. And for years, I thought that was how you made scrambled eggs. And then I got a shift working at a restaurant in um, Farringdon that's no longer there. And the head chef 
there who was called Roberto at the time taught me how to make micro taught me how to make scrambled eggs in a frying pan and my mind was blown I'd written two cookbooks by this point and I did not know how to make scrambled eggs in a pan Uh, but then I turned the microwave on its head and started using it to cook other things because I was like you are not the vehicle for cooking scrambled eggs in that I thought you were but I wonder what you could do with other things You've really liberated the, even the microwave. I am here on a mission to make everything in the kitchen feel equally valued and loved. Oh, you've got a good ethos there. <laughs> I really like it. I, I'm also enjoy, I enjoy the language in your cookbook, Jack. Chuck the onion and pepper in the pan. Crank the heat up. Smash this loaf of bread in the face. Do him. Yep. Like it's I'm very common. It's a colloquial language. It's very, yeah, it's, but also it's accessible because... I I started out teaching myself to cook, reading cookbooks, and I was like, saute? What does that mean? (laughs) Like, saute? And actually, I used to say it, saute, because I thought it looks French, it looks like it should be pronounced like a French word. I learned by reading, saute. And I was on stage at a cookery demo at a festival with another chef about two or three years ago. I said, and I was trying to be fancy because it was up at River Cottage and everyone at River Cottage was quite fancy and I felt like a complete fish out of water. So I put my nice Radio 4 voice on and I was talking very nicely to this assembled crowd of people who'd paid to see me do a cooking demo. And I was like, first saute your onions. And everyone laughed. (laughs) And they literally laughed at me. And there's a video clip of it on YouTube and I was so mortified. And the person who was cooking on stage to me went, what did you just say? And I was like, saute? It's like saute. I was like, well, and I went really red because I was like, well, I didn't know that. I've never actually learned to cook. And then everyone realised they'd been a bit out of order. And I was like, I just, I know there was a collective, oh, and I was like, fuck off. Everything's going to burn if if we have to have a whole conversation about working class roots. Okay, first stir your onions. And then I've never tried. Because I'm like, no, do you know what? You pop things in, you bung them in, you fling them in, you chuck them in, you bang them about, you smash them up, you knead them, you punch them with your hands. You don't, you don't need all that bloody, you know, fancy catering school language because we don't all go to fancy catering schools. You just need to know to make a pan hot or make it not so hot. So when I describe things, I try to use really visual, simple language. So it's like, bring it to the boil, big bubbles, reduce it to a simmer, little bubbles. It's like, because... If if you if you don't grow up knowing the language, you're not gonna it, you're gonna look at a cookery book and go, oh, I can't do that, and shut it again. Which means my recipes tend to be quite wordy. Mm. Um, they can be quite long, and some people are like, oh, you like quite simplified. And I was like, yeah, but that's because I want people to realise that it is simple. I want to get people to a stage where they don't need my books anymore. When people write to me on Instagram, they say, oh, well, I made this recipe of yours, but I swapped this for that and this for that and this for that. I hope you don't mind. I'm like, mind? It means that I've actually taught you something. You know, I've given you some confidence to go out and do your own thing. And and that's great. You know, move along, go out into the world, make baked goods. Didn't you do like a campaign for Sainsbury's and only take living wage and then give all the excess money to what did you give it to? Uh, the Trussell Trust and other food banks and food charities. That's a bold move. It was a bold move. If I knew now what I'd known then, that being freelance means that you don't get paid that amount of money on a weekly basis and um, sometimes you've got to really scrabble around in your ass to find your next pound, um, I may not have done it, but um, I did, did and I don't do regret it. it. Yeah, that's a, <coughs> that's a real move. Yeah, well, I've just, I'd gone from being a single mum on the dole, earning £10 a week, to suddenly getting a five-figure fee for a day's work yeah and I just couldn't square it. it didn't sit right with me I was like don't need it 
and a sensible me would have gone set up a business account put it in it use it live off it for the next year but the me that was working class background has always worked minimum wage or rubbish wage jobs apart from fire service that was quite good but everything else was a bit rubbish just went ah i don't know what to do with that i don't deserve it i felt like a fraud so i just wanted to get rid of it did you ask any advice from anyone before you did that? Or did no, you... no, I'm quite impulsive. So I just did it. Felt <laughs> um, good, did it? Yeah, it was you fine. You really helped people there. Yeah, and I've, you know, I've had hairy periods over the past couple of years where I've had ups and downs, not earned as much as I thought I was going to or whatever. And I've looked back and I've gone, but we can all go, oh, well, if I'd kept that, I'd still have it. If I hadn't bought my last pair of shoes, I'd still have 30 quid. If I hadn't, you know, you can't, you can't look back. I go, I did something good with that. And I trust that the universe will provide for me in turn when the time, if the time ever comes again. I feel like if you live by a code like that, it must have, I mean, that literally, that's values. That's a value yeah. system. It, it, yeah, it must have some... Uh, what do I want to say? Sort of consequence or connection, meaning. It's a very beautiful thing to have done. That's what I, I think about doing. <laughs> I like. I think I might do that. <laughs> I'm not going to, but I've done a good bit of thinking. <laughs> yeah, that's like me in the gym. I'm like, I visualise myself exercising, getting stronger. That's enough of that. Oh, I'm <laughs> just going to have some more bread. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's knackering. I'm just going to have some more bread. Better get some bread then. I've yeah. been all sick on myself yeah, thinking exactly. about that, Jim. Exactly. Just mop it up with the bread, smack it in the mouth, <laughs> shove it down the shove larynx. Shove it in, you're absolutely done. <laughs> Look at my abs. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Hmm, here it is. So, it, for you then, did it seem that quite organically a connection between food preparation, poverty, cooking on a budget politics began to form can you talk to me about how those connections were made so i started off not doing anything really about food at all i started writing a local politics blog um about the sort of goings on of my local council because i was bored single mum on the dole in south end yeah south end council i was bored single mum on the dole and a local councillor was on the front page of the paper saying druggies, drunks and single mums are ruining the high street. And I walked past, picked up a copy of the paper, read it, went home absolutely steaming furious. I was raging. And I was like, so I wrote a letter to the paper basically saying that um, that she was wrong <laughs> and it was an awful thing to say, but in quite strong terms. And from there, I set up a blog. So I started to go to council Why? meetings. What was it about the response to that initial gambit that made you think, like, I'm very interested in, like, the conception, the way that people find themselves doing things. Like, you know, you've gone from, all right, I'll have a go at cooking, reading off yeah. the back of Lloyd Grossman's thing, to writing cookbooks and appearing on stage, pre- presumably at a rate faster than you can learn how to pronounce <laughs> Saute, 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 stir, so slowly cook, <laughs> and like, and and then with regards to your involvement in, involvement in politics, can you hear like a little bird noise? Can you hear it, Jen? Sometimes I can hear a I can hear a sort of a little like occasional chirrup. Chirrup. Yeah. 
What is that occasional cheer up? I don't know. We're, we're out in the wildlife, aren't we? Do you think it's where you're like a snow white figure? Mm, yeah, they're just there's butterflies, bluebirds. There is dresses pointing outside at something. There may apparently be wildlife breaking in. I'm not surprised people are drawn to you. <laughs> so then, from what like, what happened when you wrote that letter saying, "Hold on a minute," you're saying that single mums, dr- druggies, and alcoholics are ruining the high street. What was it about doing that and the response to it that? Uh, that made you think it was something you needed to pursue? I was really interested because I was a single mum myself at the time and my son's children's centres had just been defunded. So I was looking for a job and then suddenly my nearest childcare was miles away. Um, And that decision was made by those councillors in that council chamber. My local library service was at risk. And I was suddenly like, who are these people that are putting me in the same bracket as... Um, addicts and alcoholics will come to why I'm in that bracket later <laughs> because funnily enough that was a very prescient headline um, but actually blaming all of us for the demise of the high street when the demise of the high street is actually the defunding and removal of the services that keep us in the high street in the first place and I wanted to look at these people and see what they looked like and what they thought I looked like because I bet that not one of them looked like me I wanted to see who these people were that were making decisions that were negatively impacting me and my environment and my child and my family life and my job prospects on a day-to-day basis. So I started to go to council meetings. Oh. Nothing like PMQs. They're quite <laughs> quite dull. Um, they're occasionally a bit exciting. But I went and I started... It took me a couple of weeks to like learn who was who and I worked out that all the Tories sat together over there and there were a large group of mainly white middle-aged men and the Labour lot and the kind of dishevelled, disparate band of glorious, glorious friends <laughs> who sat all together in like here and then there was sort of some like Lib Dem types at the back that just didn't really know who they were or what they were doing. <laughs> it's a and microcosm it, of woo! the political world writ large. Yeah, it is. And 51 personalities right there. <laughs> and... um And so I got to know who they all were and I started writing about it. And I then became very hyper-focused on local politics. I was writing this local blog about local politics, about six people read. And I wrote about job searching as a single parent. I wrote about the lack of apprenticeships in the town. I wrote wrote about loads of stuff and some of it got in the paper. And then that blog expanded to be my day-to-day life as well Um, because it became an outlet I started to write about local council meetings and ended up actually this is what the reality is of being a single mum on the dole and then that extended into well I found a pound in my pocket today so I went and bought some kidney beans and one carrot and one onion and I made these burgers look at my shitty life and then the recipe side of it people started to really read it and follow it and then cook the recipes and then wrote underneath about them and then it went from having about seven followers to having a couple of thousand followers and I was like people are finding this useful like I've I've got a use I've got a purpose I've been 18 months on the dole as a single mum I was like oh my god I'm doing something that's useful it's like a job so I started to take it really seriously so I got up and I would write my blog and I would cook a recipe with whatever bit of change or whatever tin I had at the cupboard or whatever I got from the food bank. I'd photograph it on my mobile phone in my poorly lit crap cold get flat. get stuff from the food bank. And yeah, the... and cook, cook it up into recipes. And, and then my blog just exploded. And the Daily Mirror did a piece on me about this is a mum who only has £10 a week. And Penguin got in touch and went, would you write a cookbook on it? Now, I was like, no. 
Like, <laughs> how bloody crass is that? I mean, hi, we've seen your life as atrocious, but you're coping. We write a book we can sell. And I was like, no. I was like, I just no, I can't write a book. And then they said, we'll give you an advance. And I went, what? Right. Oh, oh, hang yeah. on, this is a job. You're offering me a job. I need a job. I've tried to get every job under the sun. I applied to be a traffic warden. I applied to work at McDonald's. I applied to do absolutely every single thing you could possibly think of. I applied for things I wasn't qualified for, thinking, oh, I could get qualifications. Yeah, black How it. hard is driving a forklift truck anyway? Quite and, hard, you know, it? Yeah, apparently. And <laughs> pallets, the yeah. aim. Yeah, getting that fork in there. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, you know, I could... I could have. I was willing to learn anything. I applied to be a quick fit fitter. <laughs> quick fit. I, I'm, I'm actually saying these jobs. I'm imagining you in all of them. <laughs> yeah. And there is a version of you as them that I'm like. Yeah, me as a quick fit fitter. Though. Quick fit fitter yeah. Particularly I've... when they do that dance. I don't know if quick fit fitters <laughs> still do that. Yeah. No, I don't know what dance you're referring to. You definitely <laughs> didn't just imitate it. Um, and I know it's like it's a job. So I was like, yeah, okay. I was like, if I could think I could fit tyres and drive a forklift truck, I'm pretty sure I can just write a hundred recipes down on a piece of paper and email it over. Mm. Um, and so I started to write my first book and it all went from there. Went all right, did it? And what you did, press and publicity for the book and it was all yeah, right? Yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't have a computer at the time, but I was too scared to tell them that because I thought that they'd take my book deal away. So I wrote it all in a notebook. <laughs> And I sent them over one by one on my little Nokia mobile phone in an email. And my editor got in touch and she was like, Jack, this is really infuriating getting these one by one. And I was like, oh, well, you see, Lindsay, I've uh, I've not got a computer, so I've just been sending them from my phone. So they cleared a desk for me at Penguin. It's quite I a lot of moments. Being... Of, there's a lot of R moments. I know, there's a lot there's of... There's the saute. <laughs> <laughs> Then I mean, writing yeah, the book on your phone. Writing the book moment. on my phone. It's because I'm a bit a Nokia phone. shy. It's not even a proper Nokia keyboard. Nokia E72. It's not even oh, a proper phone. No, you've got to press Sorry, Nokia. Like a, B, C. No, no, this one had a keyboard. It was like a shit Blackberry. Okay, it at least had a keyboard, keyboard, but it was these tiny little buttons. And um, yeah, they cleared a little desk for me and let me go and sit and work up in their big fancy offices on the Strand. Yeah, they are fancy. I, oh, I went to the, another R moment coming up. I went to Oxfam and bought myself some nice shirts to wear so that I could have something nice to wear to the big fancy office rather than working in my dressing gown. And I went up and I took my notebook with me and I typed it all up from the notebook. And, and that's how I still write my books today. I write them all first in a notebook and then I transcribe it. It infuriates my editors something rotten, especially when we get to that stage where they go, we just need these. And I go, well, you type it up then. <laughs> and they're like, oh, Jesus, no, have it back. <laughs> have another two weeks, it's fine. <laughs> Once you thrust that bloody notebook at someone, that Yeah, puts there's some... full of bits of paper that are falling out of it and menus I've stolen and stuff like that. It's just like... They're just like, what is this? I'm like, this is a physical representation of my brain. <laughs> it's stuffed full of absolute bollocks, 5% of which is useful. <laughs> Good luck weeding out yeah, that. Good luck finding it, deciphering it. through that cerebellum. <laughs> get to the, the good bread stuff. dough off it. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose given your, the nature of your trajectory, where it seems that even at the point of conception... It was about politics and cooking and sort of surviving. And I suppose that connection between politics and survival is 
something I don't really think about because I suppose for me for a long time politics has been primarily theoretical as opposed to oh no this thing's happening and I'll die if I don't deal with it so like so I suppose it's inevitable given that that, that your uh, journey was inaugurated in that manner that eventually you would come up against Katie Hopkins voice of the right and like as person yeah. I, I, I've met her before and sorry about that <clears throat> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, it's, it's sort of there was an inevitability to it, I suppose. And I've met her as well. Yeah, and what, TV so debate. what happened? Don't know. I walked into a room, she walked out of it. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, fair. I, I take that as yeah. a that's a victory. That's a... Yeah, I was like, uh, something, <laughs> something I did. <laughs> <laughs> was this post or, no, or pre. Pre, <laughs> pre. pre the suing? Yeah. Yeah, so like, uh, what? happened there she didn't she sort of accuse you of being disrespectful to the military or Poppy yeah Bay or she something like that? wrote a tweet that was seen to heavily imply <laughs> suddenly suddenly my brain's kicked in and gone legal, legal caution legal, legal caution <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so she wrote a tweet that basically heavily implied that i vandalized or condoned the vandalization of a war memorial yeah. um my dad was in the falklands my as in the war bit, not just for a jolly. Um, my brother's in the RAF. I've got a family of military service people. Uh. And I was like, nah, mate, I've, I've, I read Tommy by Rudyard Kipling, uh, Senesaf <laughs> one year, you know, I've, 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 I've got family with like military, um, service. So firstly, I would not vandalize a war memorial, even though I'm ideologically opposed to war as a concept and as a very, as a real thing. I wouldn't vandalise a memorial because I also have respect for people who've given their lives for our country. But secondly, my God, what if my dad reads that and believes it? Like, or any of his friends or any of his friends at the Naval Military Club or any of my brother's friends or and think that I'm responsible for that. Mm. So I had a very emotive response to that because of my own military connections. And I was just like, take that down or I'll sue you. Because I was so furious. And I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a lawyer. I didn't know how to get a lawyer. I didn't, I didn't have the money for a lawyer. And I opened my email inbox. And there was about 40 lawyers offering to represent me pro bono. Really? <laughs> I was like, so, okay, this looks like it might actually happen then. And through the whole process, because suing someone is so long and so mm. all-consuming. I spent 18 months, basically, suing Casey Hopkins. I wasn't really able to work. I was so distracted. Her acolytes were continually still sending me abuse and threats. And so I just I just shut down. And I was like, people go, oh, well, you know, 24 grand for two tweets. I'm like, no, mate. The equivalent of my annual salary for 18 months of absolute hell. Mm. and a lot of legal paperwork. No one paid all my travel expenses for having to go up to my lawyer's office in London three times a week, and no one paid like for all the therapy that I've had to have in order to sort of be a decent human being that's functional and capable again. And I'm like, ah, I just... It, it had to be done, though, and also I'm quite stubborn. If I say I'm going to do something, I do it. Yeah. And I gave her ample opportunities to apologise, to back down, to walk away. Even afterwards, I said to her, if you just publicly say sorry, I'll give you your money back. <laughs> <laughs> it's not hard, though, is it? No. But 
apparently it is. It's really, really, really difficult, apparently, to just go, sorry, <laughs> I, I was a dick. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that perhaps you um, inadvertently or sublimely highlighted the essential problem uh, that Katie Hopkins is perhaps a symbol of uh, an inability to go oh sorry I was a dick yeah but there's, but there's, there's no real back. problem there is a real problem with that especially on social media and I have found because my god I've ballsed up on Twitter and social media many times because I'm impulsive I'm bad tempered I used to drink a lot so and that and that is a as a triumvirate of personality traits is um is means that uh, quite often I've had very late night phone calls from my agent going, Jack, yep, delete that tweet. <laughs> like, uh, oh, okay, yeah, sorry, Rosemary, thank you, bye. Uh, um, but I've had to, I've had to learn to go. I've reevaluated my position. I realise I was wrong. I've upset you. I've upset people. It wasn't my intention, but I can see that there are things I need to learn. I'm going to take this as an opportunity to grow. Thank you all for pointing it out. Have a lovely day. Yeah. Step down, be quiet, get your head down, contemplate, grow a little bit, come back a little bit more humble. It's not hard to do. I mean, you have to mean it because people see through it if you don't. But it's also not hard to listen to other people's feedback and go, oh, God, actually, yes, I can see from your point of view why that may have been upsetting. Um, I'm going to take this as an opportunity to learn more about your point of view and to use this as an opportunity to expand my viewpoint. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not a weak personality trait. It's it's an opportunity to learn and grow. That's why they call it growing pains, because sometimes it bloody hurts. But it's the better thing to do rather than go, don't care if you were offended, snowflake. I'm going to just eat my vegan sausage roll on television and tell you all how shit it is. It's like, ah, oh, Piers. <laughs> but it is, it's that whole macho culture of, I'm right, I think I'm right, and I don't care if I'm actually wrong, there's no way on God's earth I'm going to admit it. It's like... Yeah, that can't be useful, can it? No, I've got an eight-year-old who doesn't behave like that. I don't understand how we've spawned a generation of adults who are making millions out of behaving like that. (laughs) Well, my best guess is that it must somehow represent an unaddressed unconscious impulse that exists writ large in our national culture so when people see it instead of being repulsed by it that it somehow metabolizes their own feelings of impotent rage see i've got a theory it's my favorite little theory and i usually get it out at like dinners with friends and Should stuff I do a and jingle they for roll it then? their eyes jack's favorite theory <laughs> is that we we see these people the Casey hopkins the piers morgans in the way that we used to all see common villains on like soaps and things like dirty that dirty den dirty den we all used to sit down and watch television at the same time so we would have this common ground. We'd have this common ground, common ground, something to chat about in the pub or the school playground or your knitting circle or whatever, because you'd all have seen the same thing the night before. So we're going, oh, nasty, nick, dirty den, whoever it was of the week. And now we all watch what we like when we like. And there's so much different entertainment out there that we don't have that common villain anymore. So these people have popped up to fill a void of like a pantomime villain in our lives. Something we can all discuss, something we can all watch, something we can all see play out in real time at the same time. 
and unite over in a common, oh, God, like hate follows and rage follows. And you go, oh, God, did you see what they said or did you see what they've done now? And, and all the clickbait and all the stuff that comes out of that really is filling a void in where entertainment television used to be. And it's sort of the, the la- lack of scheduled programming in television... The rise of reality TV right, shows Lord like Big Reef. Brother, like Big Brother and stuff like that, and then and then they just fill that void. I agree that that's part of it because I don't think it's all of it. No, but don't ruin my. Oh, sorry, 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 Russell, sorry. Like, yeah, that's part of it because like that bit where I was saying it helps us uh, metabolize villainy. But then the other aspect of it, like, and I like this idea that we no longer have the shared campfire tribal yeah. experience of a soap opera. But what about like the fact that a lot of people seem to like it as in go I agree with that like you know what about that side of it yeah it's bizarre isn't it it's because and that is social media where people used to have these dark thoughts on their own and then we all have dark thoughts we're all we've all got a darkness haven't we oh, and darkness. we'd have this we'd all have we'd all have these dark thoughts but we wouldn't have anywhere to put them and now the dark thoughts can come together like iron filings across the internet and they just congregate like this and they magnetise towards each other and then what you have is you don't have this tiny dark thought piddling around in its bedroom anymore you've got it in a big corner of the internet and these people are feeding off each other and they're talking to each other and they're reinforcing each other and then and then bad things happen <laughs> <laughs> I like that these, those were two really good theories the iron filings, iron filings and the lack of scheduled television. Yeah, exactly. He really <laughs> leapt through a lot of genres there, like Nijinsky, because yeah. he was famous for ballet and and leaping through genres, two things he did so well. And I think you, I agree with Yeah, we are all iron said. filings. And what we need to do is sit down and just watch scheduled television <laughs> and, not, and not tweet about it. <laughs> what we need is a real good, honest, decent villain in a soap opera that we can all get behind We hating. can all get behind yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. So, <laughs> what are a few things then? So, there, because it feels like that uh, conflict with Katie Hopkins, it was a right um, reclamation of the of territory that used to. <sighs> But territory that rightly belonged to ordinary people. And it's interesting you come from that background of like working class professionals, I suppose you may yeah. might say, like nurses, firemen, yeah. ex military people that you know, where they're that come from perhaps a climate a time where there were job opportunities where you could earn a decent wage doing what we could, perhaps we can term ordinary jobs. And that, that means that your affiliations and your experience is that world rather than a theoretical repurposing yeah. like of well, we're talking about decent soldiers yeah. when you think you don't even care about that stuff yeah that sanctimony and that poppy wearing is just a way of imposing sort of patriotism as yeah. in the nation as the yeah. bedrock for elitism and power yeah. as opposed to the nation is all of us yeah. and belongs to all of us equally so you really hit something there i feel like um you've got a lot of good leadership qualities Thank you. What are you going to do about the old booze then? Well, I quit. You've knocked, you've knocked that. <laughs> I have knocked that right on the head. <laughs> right. Because so I what, was what having was quite a lot of it. Drinking a lot. Um, Why? Yeah, I was Why? drinking a lot. Well, because when I was suddenly... When did this start? How long has it been going on? Finally something I know about. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was just chucked into the public eye. I was a single mum on the dole and then suddenly I had a book deal and I was being invited to parties at the Groucho. And mm. I was like... Yeah, hotbed of <laughs> hotbed of terrible, beautiful things. I've been there. And um, yeah, me too. <laughs> and um, and I found myself in situations where I was in rooms full of like 
super famous people and people would go what do you do and I'd, I, I've, I'm not a very confident person. Why? I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I've been working on it for a year or so What do you mean you're now. not confident? I'm, not, I'm quite an anxious com- person. You've got fear. Yeah, I've, fear. Got quite ba- I've got social anxiety. So I would drink <sighs> at parties because it's handed around, you know. So I would just neck a couple of drinks and be like, right, now I feel more confident. Now I feel like a better version of me. Now I feel like I belong in this room. But so actually, in Southend, you're not drinking in Southend? I wasn't really. Um, and I wasn't when you're drinking doing the blog the and you're writing... You're not drinking. Well, I started off drinking at parties and then drinking in the evenings and then drinking for lunchtime meetings with journalists. And then it just became part of who I was. It was like, as Jack, she's always half cut. I mean, it's a bit weird, isn't it, that uh, when you're living as a single mum, there's no drink put you in the celebrity environment. Yeah, and suddenly I've got to be slaughtered to cope with it. And I started to then drink to cope with stress. I started to drink to... Um, you know, because I was anxious and it, it became quite a big thing. And then it got to a point where my doctor said to me, you know, um, I want to I want you to keep a diary of what you drink. And I've gone to my doctor about arthritis and I was like, are you saying that my booze is having an impact on my joints? They're like, no, no, you've got some kind of autoimmune chronic thing going on that you've got from your mum. We're in the process of diagnosing it, but your drinking is fogging the waters because we don't know whether you're sore and achy because of you know, because you've got a hangover because you've got a three day hangover because your liver's trying to catch up with the rest of your body or so I want you to keep a diary of what you drink and I did and I was drinking 200 units of alcohol a week that's a too many I think let me that's check my file. Quite, uh, yeah, that's too many. That's far too many. <laughs> yeah, government guideline is 14. <laughs> <laughs> Them cowards. Do, I don't do things by half. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, that's not a day, right? Um, You're drinking so, the council meetings units. Yeah, <laughs> precisely. Um, and so I started to cut down because I was like, okay, well, that's excessive. I started to cut down, started to cut down, and started to cut down, and I got it under control. And then I just went, oh, do you know what? I just need to stop. Why did you reach that conclusion? Because I was kidding myself. I was going, oh, well, it's all right now because I'm only drinking 50 units a week. It's all right now because I have two days off a week. I'm like, there's nothing to be congratulated on. Do you know what I mean? I was like, I just need to stop because I want to concentrate on my work. I've got a big year coming up. And I just want to reclaim my time. I'm always saying that I haven't got time. It's because I spent three hours in the evening pissed and an hour in the morning recovering. And I'm like, I've now reclaimed a thousand hours out of a year if I keep it up for a year. What can I do with that time? I'd worked it out for Twitter. I hadn't just worked it out on the spot. (laughs) But I was like, but I am all right at maths. It was one of the only things I was good at at school. And I'm like, so what can I do with all that time and all that new energy and all that new focus and all the money that I'm not going to be spending on booze? So I just took it as a sort of a a measured decision. It was quite an impulsive one, as are all of my decisions. And I went, oh, I'm going to stop drinking. And my other half was like, but it's the 27th of December. I was like, yep. Yeah. She was like, so you're going to stop through New Year? I was like, yep. Yeah. She sort of shook her head like she's heard this a hundred times. And I did, partly because I'm really petty. <laughs> and if I, someone believes I'm not going to do anything, I'm like, oh, I'll do it. I'll manage it. Sat there New Year with my cinnamon coke. Like, <laughs> lovely, lovely this, isn't it? I <laughs> drank three two litre bottles of cinnamon coke. Oh, I was the, the highest person oh, in the room. That amount of cinnamon coke, yeah, yeah you're best yeah. a lot of them. I was. I was having a massively wild time. Everyone else was two o'clock in the morning. Time to go. And I was like, but I'm well awake. I was like, I'm having a lovely time. And I'm like, full of sugar and aspartame. <laughs> <laughs> what been the emotional impact of not drinking? 
the first few days was fine because I was pushing through to a sort of I've got to get through new year I've got to get through new year but I've had some times where I've just really really wanted a drink I've just been I found myself standing in the booze on Asda just looking at it just going well this I just used to stand there and just look at it and I found myself standing there looking at it again going oh it's just one it's not gonna hurt no one's gonna know and I'm like you all know you have to live with yourself you like the one person you spend the most time with Jack you you are gonna know and I was like okay yes this internal debate I'm having myself in the beers wines and spirits aisle of the supermarket walking away or I'll walk past the pub and I'll just my feet will just grind to a halt outside and I'll be like because I used to stop off at the pub on the way back from the supermarket nip in have a whiskey and go home Given what you're saying, what do you think the role and function of alcohol was in your life? Partly as a confidence boost, but mostly as a numbing agent. <sighs> to make you feel good and make you not feel. To make me feel good until I didn't want to feel anymore. And you know that first drink, good. Second drink, good. Third drink, fuzzy. Fourth drink, floor. Most. And then you're like. <laughs> yeah, that feels like you probably shouldn't drink. Yeah. And now I've gone, I can't just have one. No. So I'm not going to. And if I ever get to a point again where I can have a drink at a party and a drink, then I will. But the amount of speeches I've given, like award dues where I've not known I was going to get an award, and I've literally rolled up to the stage absolutely plastered. And I'm like, do you know what? Actually, I look back now and I go, that's so disrespectful. So the people who voted for me, so the people who, like, who judged that panel, so the people who stood there and given a 10-minute speech about my work, and I roll up absolutely snorting, thank you very much. It's just not, I just was like, I'm tired of that. And I'm tired of the charade of being the good time girl. I want to be able to have conversations that I remember form connections that are meaningful and to move forward this year with a real focus and clarity. I've got two books coming out in the next 12 months. Wicked. Like, I've, got to be, I've got to be top of my game. I need my thousand hours back. I'm going to be busy. Um, first one's called Tin Can Cook. It's a recipe or it's a book of 75 recipes, mm. all from tins. So it's sort of like partly a Brexit cookbook, partly a food bank cookbook, partly a... What, you think post-Brexit stock up on the yeah, old tins? Yeah, I've been stockpiling. <laughs> <laughs> I have. I've got, <laughs> I've got 12 tins of every kind of bean in my cupboard. <laughs> it's, um, uh, um, yeah, so it's partly like a Brexit cookbook, partly a food bank cookbook, um, and partly a everybody's so snobby about tinned food, fuck you, I want to make a burr blanc out of it kind of cookbook. I'm making like five star cuisine out of. What and it will beans. be nutritionally. Spot- yeah, I've done. I've done all the nutrition side of it. There's Have actually you? a chapter in it called Cansplaining. Where it takes all the myths and all the shit people have said to me about tinned food. Oh, it doesn't have any vitamins in and stuff like that. And listed like all of the studies and all the peer reviewed papers and all the like nutritional stuff around tinned food and what to eat for what vitamins and because it was that was the heaviest chapter of any book I've ever written because I had to do so much research for it but I wanted it to be a really solid fuck you to people who went oh but tinned food's not nutritious I'm like well actually (laughs) here's a load of information about why it is and here's the bibliography that's an entire page long of where you can find more information about it that's good isn't it person who doesn't believe me that tinned tomatoes have got lycopene in fictional A person. Yeah, someone else is like, oh, well, tins give you cancer. It's like, life gives you cancer, <laughs> move along. <laughs> it's like, just just, just stop, people. Just 
stop it's a cookbook for people who don't really have many choices like and it's taking the stuff that you get in a food bank box and making it into food that you would serve to your friends and that's what i wanted to do so where um given that you have taken that what you've been doing from the from your food blog has reached incredible heights incredible success what are you going to do about the other aspects of your work the activism and campaigning involvement in local politics so what what, how, how does that interest you and is that something that you see as being part of your life yeah definitely i i still stay very involved in politics i'm often asked to do um sorry i'm just gonna do you feel all right you're not very well i had a chest infection about a week ago and it seems to because this is the most talking i've done for like a week (laughs) i think it's just come back with a vengeance but i've been slugging benelin for days it's quite nice that benelin it's delicious (laughs) benelin you probably should be having that i've given out the booze i'm doing five benelins benelins (laughs) yeah don't me on your next podcast i've had to give up the benelin russell (laughs) 200 units a week (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah I've I've retained an interest in politics and I still get involved I do quite a lot of anti-austerity campaigning I do a lot of work with individual MPs on food bank use and um, you know poverty work across Britain um, I do see myself going into politics in the future but I've always mm. said like as a single mum I need to be able to make sure that my son can get home and put something in the slow cooker before I spend three nights a week up in the Houses of Parliament. So it's something that I see myself doing, but probably not for 10 years yet, because yeah. he's a little shrimplet. He's my little boy. Got to sort the kid out. Maybe, maybe get a bit be more... more kid. Yeah, Might maybe have. some more babies or whatever, and then... Sort of, get a bit of time and stability around the drinking, and mm. now we know Benelin. <laughs> yeah, we have Benelin problem. <laughs> and then with this new stability re-engage politically yeah tell me let's talk a little bit about what, what do you think about what's going on mate like i mean say for example let's just keep it start like, as a launch point for food banks what does it say uh, 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 about a society that's something like that charity becomes institutionalized and necessary what does that say about the sort of way we're moving culturally and socially it was always a fear of mine was that food banks would become mainstream and when I was a food bank user, it was 2012, and they weren't anywhere near as as high, the usage for them wasn't anywhere near as high as it is now. Um, and now we've got food bank boxes at the end of every supermarket checkout. They're like an innocuous thing. They're like, buy some food, put it in here, feed your neighbourhood. You're like, but those food bank boxes are there as sticking plasters over the gaps in the safety net of a functional welfare state that's been being stripped away by the Tories under their austerity measures since 2010. And eight years in, and we've got 4.2 million children in poverty, 14 million adults in poverty in Britain. We've got 8 million working households in poverty. We've got 320,000 people homeless on the streets. That's just a sleeping rough homeless. And those numbers are growing year on year. And those numbers are growing as a result of the cuts to social care, welfare, benefits, um, the universal credit rollout, benefit sanctions, delays, um, the fact that public sector wages haven't been rising in line with inflation for the last eight years. And you just go... And that is all coming together to create a more unequal, a more unjust society where the gaps between the people who have things and the gaps between the people who do not have the very basics of the most basic things are getting wider and wider and wider. And so 
I don't know where I started talking about that or how, but <laughs> well, I talked about it's... what the food banks indicate about society and, and, well, and the fact that they growing indicate... inequality and lack of social provision. They indicate that there's. They indicate two things. Firstly, that as a community, we are we we come together to look after our own. Um, statistically, working class and poor people are the people who donate to food banks. Former food bank users do the most work around helping those food banks tick on. So it's sort of like an inverse pyramid scheme for the working class. You sort of, you get some help from it, so you invest back into it. Um, But the people who benefit the most from food banks being in existence are the large corporations who don't have to pay decent wages to their staff because they know that they're going to get picked up by other people. Someone else is going to pick up the buck. I'd like, and it's a conversation I have with the publicity guy at um, the Trussell Trust quite often, is that we'd both quite like to be out of a job in five years' time. We'd like our work to be so successful that there's not a sodding food bank in the country, nobody's in need of it, and that nobody needs to learn to cook out of tins because everyone can have enough money to feed themselves decently, to feed themselves well. Prior to... Well, is it what, like 10, 15 years ago, there were not food banks? No, there was a couple under the Labour government and they were always very, the Tories were always very quick to point it out. They were always very quick to be like, oh, well, food banks actually started under Tony Blair. And you're like, yeah, like five. And you'd expect a country that's got 62 million people in it to have some anomalies slipping through the safety net, you know. But actually now 1.3 million people used a food bank last year and that's 2% of the country. And that's actually one in 50 people. And that's just the people that we know about. And then suddenly that is institutionalised. That is a massive deal. But what is a massive deal is the complacency that somebody else is picking it up. When the DWP start handing out food bank vouchers, you're like, no, mate, pay people their benefits. Pay people what they're owed. Don't just go, oh, well, we've cocked it up, but these nice Christian ladies will give you some tins. (laughs) No, mate, sort the problem out at its source rather than passing the buck on to somebody else to deal with. It's interesting that it's at least administratively uh, often members of spiritual and religious communities that engage with social care. I suppose. Yeah. For me, Jack, that's because a sort of spiritual lifestyle or connection uh, prioritised above a sort of secular or material one infers certain principles like brotherhood, community, yeah. oneness, the that the life is temporary and transient and the most yeah. important things are love and giving and we mustn't be distracted by the self all of the, you know that like, it, it makes sense to me mm-hmm. that it would be that way do you see like a political these solutions like you know you you've said you'd like to go into politics and i think that's a great idea and i think you definitely should <laughs> but like do you think that politics as it currently stands are kind of sort of by party parliamentary system can access the needs for ordinary people having the experiences you've had at a level of local government and what you're beginning to witness and understand now as a public person the most successful um local council that i've lived under in my lifetime 30 years in south end was a coalition that had a labor leader a few disparate lib dems and um, some independent councillors propping up. And for the first time in about 30 years, they built social housing in the town. They um, improved the education system. Loads of schools got boosted to Ofsted schools because they were reinvesting in schools. They kept children's centres open. Um, The list of things that they achieved was enormous. Really? Um, And two years later... 
because Southend has been a conservative town for as long as it's been a town, I think. Um, they the Tories edged it back in by like one one seat and undid it all. But it was sort of to me that was a real. I'd always deeply suspected that a rainbow coalition was the was the way to get things done because what you have is not one group of people adhering to one group of principles that they hold fast to that's absolutely right and whipped into shape. You've got a bunch of people that have to sit down and they represent a wider group of the town and they have to juggle their priorities and they have to discuss things like adults and they have to compromise and they have to do what's best for the most people. Mm. And that makes me think that our parliamentary system would be so much more representative if we had a coalition government that was a coalition across the board. So instead of a first-past-the-post system, which we have, which is just so boringly, statistically difficult to ever make work for the ordinary person um, because of boundary lines and all sorts of nonsense, if we had a coalition of... um, of a range of ideas and I accept that that means having people in government who I may not agree with personally or politically there would be to say that under alternative what's it called proportional voting proportional representation um we'd end up with like some UKIP MPs and people go oh no but there'll be UKIP MPs and you're like but do you know what I I abhor everything that they stand for I would never vote for them myself but there are UKIP people in our country we can't just pretend they don't exist you know we can't just not have their views heard as much as I don't agree with Mm. them and also what ends up happening is that the sort of the influence of UKIP end up happening in a bipartisan system anyway and end up happening in a sort of slightly well what happens is the people who would more be more moderate right wing if that's such a thing conservatives end up being dragged further to the right by the UKIP rhetoric to try to appeal to their voters Mm. and the same thing happens with the Labour Party and what you end up having is you end up with these external, slightly dark, nastier forces impacting our mainstream politics anyway. So put them in the middle where we can all see them, where we can all point at them, where we can all talk to them mm. and stick it somewhere where we can where we can all debate it out like adults rather than all debating it out in our echo chambers of the internet. Perhaps also if we have an optimistic view of human beings, we have to at some point think, well, they are ultimately people that voted for things that we don't, agree with they still have the same basic concerns they still want to look after their families they still want to look after their communities they still love one another completely the wrong way and i also think that if you if you if the best thing to do with people who are you know a lot of the far right alt right whatever right that aren't right about anything right (laughs) is they go oh well no one listens to me so give them an mp then Go there you go. Now we're now we're listening to you. What is it exactly you were trying to say again? And and then from there you go, well, you take away all of that power, that underground power, that martyr status that the Katie Hopkins and Tommy Robinson and people like that have is I'm standing up for people whose voices don't get heard. You're like, well, if we had a proportional representation system, we wouldn't have all these dark forces in the background going Oh, send me your money via PayPal and I'll say all your racist things for you. (laughs) (laughs) Rise of populism, I suppose, um, it it occurs when people feel like the institutions that are meant to represent them no longer represent them. And I feel that that's uh, something that I've myself felt 
mm-hmm. like that. Like, oh, these these this is all bullshit. It's not going to help us. That doesn't care. They don't care about ordinary people. Like, you know, these are feelings I sort of just was grew up on. Yeah. So well, I suppose the ideal situation is that power is as close to the people that it are affected by it as possible. People yeah. make decisions about their own community. Yeah. The idea that like, where possible power, decentralized power in the hand, economic power, yeah. power to organize and exert will with the very people that will be affected by it. And I can see that, you know, that you're, you know, the sort of often discussed idea of proportional representation is one way of starting to deconstruct some of the monoliths that prevent yeah. m- meaningful change. Does that mean uh, that you are... Do you, how, do you feel optimistic about the Labour Party as it is at the moment? I think the Labour Party is actually quite a good example of proportional representation oh, right. <laughs> in a microcosm because it is a very broad church of ideas and there is a real, not a split in it at the moment, but there is a real hostility between what is seen as two different sides of the Labour Party, but it's all the Labour Party. They all have a very common set of grounds and ideals and and just because like some people i mean the labor party extends from everyone from like kate hoey all the way down to like really left-wing mps you know but they're but they're there and people keep saying oh they should split and you're like well what good's that gonna do creating another two like micro parties of like completely different ideals that just further polarizes and i think the idea that if people fall out or disagree with each other, oh, that's it, we've just got to split it, we've got to split it in half, we can't talk to each other anymore, is really symptomatic of where we're at as a society now. It's like Twitter, somebody disagrees with you, block them. It's like, you just, or you could sit down in a room and go, what are our common goals? What are our common grounds? What unites us? Rather than what divides us? What do we disagree on? What can I block you over? What can we row about? We go, well, what do we collectively want to achieve? And I think that's a question that we need to be asking ourselves more is what do we collectively want to achieve rather than how many points can we score off somebody in a debate? Yeah, I think you're right about that. And I I feel that that it's going to be difficult to achieve that when people feel dislocated from power that they don't have any real influence on their own lives. So I can see that there's a sort of a need for real structural change before that occurs i feel like i'm like talking to you and hearing about your um progress it makes me feel like well people aren't bloody idiots give give people power in their own lives this thing happened to me when i was driving home from a gig there was like a car had had a little accident it was nighttime side of a road sort of you know like tangerine light and service stations in the distance i got out you know that's the sort of fella i am i'll always play jesus on the grass verge given half a chance (laughs) so I get a Polish woman perched on the crash barrier yeah uh, like with a little cut on red and she's on the phone and while I'm there like sort of a a sort of a group of different people start to accrue like that are stopping to help in this incident like another sort of bloke who's Eastern European in a high-vis jacket can't even work out whether he knows or not they're talking in not in English and then like um the fella that was driving me is a Muslim bloke he's sort of getting mucking in and helping then some sort of English working class type people will come over and help. One bloke comes over, he's training to be a paramedic. He rinses everything. Yeah. Go and get that. All I was doing was passing him little bits and bobs. This weren't a major injury this woman had, by the way. Anyway, I like, what was, there was a few things that were interesting. One, my uh, status as a celebrity person was irrelevant, not yeah. even remarked on, to a point where it was borderline rude, actually. <laughs> 
situation, that's my t- So my point is, why weren't people more impressed? Yeah, no. like I, Russell Brand, was helping a woman in need. On a verge. Well, look at this. Look at us all they together. They probably thought that you were Especially me. <laughs> no, just didn't want to embarrass me. He's, fi- he's finally come back. Let's yeah, not embarrass him. Yeah, this is a little bit understated for the second coming, but here we go. <laughs> so it's turned up in a lay-by, it turns out. Um, so then, like, when we got back in the car, like having fully accepted that the paramedic trainee fella was definitely the best person to deal with it are you sure it wasn't you i'm like i mean five minutes before is there any way that a pithy remark could make this situation better or perhaps some (laughs) grandstanding (laughs) but it turned out no medical know-how was definitely one of the rare situations where it trumps all (laughs) (laughs) Ah, what are the chances of that happening in a road accident jack anyway like when we got back in the car uh, the uh curry who drives me goes um goes if you leave people alone, they'll just get on. People just get on with one another. They'll just crack on and help each other. Yeah. It was a, and it gave me a feeling. It gave me a feeling about the, the, the inflection and what we're told about how different we are and how different we are from one another. It, like I've experienced and felt the divisiveness of it, that things are overcomplicated yeah. when we're told about how this group of people is separate from this group of people. It made me think that the state's role needs to be diminished of course like we know that there there needs to be some force that's able to regulate the global trolling power of mighty corporations but mostly it gave me a sense human beings are all right actually yeah if you give them some authority and purpose in their own lives people there are human and most importantly i suppose what i'm saying jack is there are human instincts that are benign and loving we all like we focus enough on oh we're all decadent let's kill each other you know the negative iron filings scarring the internet you know all those things are in us but i feel like we live in systems and and a culture more broadly that doesn't nurture and encourage the aspects of our nature that are quite beautiful they have to almost be independently taken care of now yeah i i truly believe in our common humanity and in um in individuals um ability to be inherently kind and good and it's something that i have seen a lot of over the last six years um, is whenever I've been in trouble or whenever I've posted a charity appeal or whenever I've tried to do a petition for food banks or anything, people just congregate. How can I help? What can I do? How can I be involved? How can I help? And I've seen a lot of it in... I've just seen a lot of human kindness over the last few years, okay. either towards me or towards other people. Um, and I, I truly believe that it is our that we are instinctively helpful as a species like as 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 a group of people human beings are adorable we are we like traffic accident can i help like i've got no <laughs> paramedics experience but can i help you know how can i be how can i be useful in this circumstance we're like slightly puppyish in in our in our need to be helpful to be useful to be loved to be adored to be to to contribute something in a situation and i think we need to nurture that aspect and reward that aspect because so often we are rewarding the Donald Trumps, the Katie Hopkins, the Tommy Robinsons, the maligned outsiders with the horrible words that they're like, oh, but it's what you're all thinking. But how about if we rewarded goodness and kindness and and benevolence and inherent decency and applauded and lauded that in the same way that we uphold the bloody martyrs of the far right? And if we instead chose to... Uh, it's something I try to do on Twitter in a very minor way. 
is to not respond to trolls anymore and bullies and instead to respond to people who are nice and what it's done is it's changed the algorithm so that I don't actually see the bullying comments anymore um, because I I've chosen to only respond to the nice things so Twitter now shows me the nice things but also the trolls and the bullies have largely stopped because they're not getting the attention they realise that if they want me to give them attention, they have to say something nice. <laughs> and so in, in, in my own way, I'm changing what I'm exposed to and what I respond to by, firstly, a lot of therapy, and secondly, by what I choose to pay attention to on Twitter. But the human brain is hardwired towards negativity. We have a negativity bias. And it takes a lot of work to unpick that and try to rewire it to positivity, partly because we don't believe that we deserve good things. Deep down inside all of us, we don't, we kind of, like me, getting that great big sum from Sainsbury's, went, oh, quick, how do I get rid of it? I don't believe I deserve this. Yeah. You know, and if we choose to focus on the good, it might seem like a completely naive viewpoint, but if we choose to focus on and reward goodness and kindness and decency, how much different could the world look? And even if that's just our own little world, how much different could that look? Yes, I think radically different. Jack, that's <laughs> an amazing place for us to end. I've seen you great, uh, like, uh, potential Coughs. as a human being. You're coughing up all sorts of <laughs> mighty wisdom. <coughs> Qatar and, uh, and homely adorability <laughs> and female strength. Politics. <laughs> it's all there, Jack. Yep. Jack, good luck with your book. Good luck with the tin thing. Good luck Thank with your future you. politics. Good luck with not drinking. Thank you for coming on Under the Skin. Thank you so much. You've been really, really brilliant guest it's so lovely to talk to you i didn't know that you would be so earthed and bright what a thank lovely you. combination that's a lovely thing to say thank you oh, very much it felt like. good thank you thank you for listening to under the skin let me know what you thought uh you can tweet me at rusty rockets that's my name on twitter with the hashtag under the skin or let me know on instagram tag me at true russell brand what about instagram stories though oh i love those you've got to you've got to at tag me in one of your bloody instagram story books steve coogan fern cotton johan hari all coming up on the podcast soon if you have any questions for them email me at hello at russellbrand.com. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe and rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thanks very much.